Good evening everybody, welcome to Let's Talk Assassin's Creed, your number one podcast for all things Assassin's Creed. Hello everyone and welcome back to Let's Talk Assassin's Creed. This is episode 163 and as you probably will have guessed by the episode title, whether you're listening on audio or watching it back on YouTube, we have a returning very special guest at Kate Hartfield. Welcome back. Hello, I'm really happy to be here. It's great to have you back. And uh, we had a really good conversation nearly a year ago. I was just looking back at the dates earlier. I think we recorded at the end of July and we, we published the episode early August um, 2022. And uh, we we spent over an hour um, talking about your first Assassin's Creed uh, novel, uh, Magus Conspiracy, Magus Conspiracy. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a fantastic conversation. Excellent book. I've, I've said it um many times but that was my favorite bit of assassin's creed content across all the media types um of last year really fantastic book and it it gave us two great new characters in in the assassin's creed canon um simeon and pierre and, and an army of their their friends and allies and enemies um as well so we're back to talk about the next book in the series um resurrection plot mm-hmm. um I wondered um, if we might just comment, even before we get into the novel, um, there's a very nice dedication on the uh, on the cover page. Um, and uh, I, I wondered, because uh, as we discussed last time, you've played some of the games in the series, you love Syndicate. Was that a sort of a little comment to yourself when you stayed up late and uh, carried on playing? I'll do one more mission. I'll do one more mission. <laughs> Yes, definitely. Yeah, the dedication is uh, for everyone who's who stayed up too late for one more mission. And uh, definitely that is uh, a message, I guess, to my younger self and, and my current self uh, sometimes as well, uh, definitely, uh, because I am a gamer. Um, and, uh, and I also just wanted some way to dedicate the book to the players of the game and to the fans of the franchise uh, in a way that wasn't too cheesy. It took me a long time actually to figure out how to phrase it because that's really who I felt this book was for. Um, having written the first one, you know, and, and having felt that enthusiasm from so many readers and um, and seeing it fit into the canon of this game and in this universe in such a wonderful way that really the second one I felt was um, a way to kind of give back some of that energy and respond to that um, so it just seemed natural to me that, that that's what the dedication would be. But what figuring out how to phrase that and how to put that uh, took me a little while. It it was a great thing to see on the very first page. It was uh, it was lovely. We uh, we really appreciated that. And actually, you just said something there that reminded me. So um, my first question on our on our sort of planning sheet, less of a question and more of an apology. Um, when we were preparing for this episode, I, I listened back to our interview from last year. And there are several times in the recording when I called your book, The Game. What happens in The Game? And I'm so sorry. It's not a game. Anyway, there, there are lots of points. There, and it's the same in this in this book, like where you can visualize it. This could be a mission. I could be on that rooftop. I could parkour. I could get that target. You can sort of visualize it with your sort of uh, gamer mind um, turned off. I do apologize. It's not a game. It's a book. Oh, I didn't even notice. And it's funny because I feel the same way sometimes it does. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the story is the story, right? So yeah, (laughs) it's all good. Understood. Well, thank you. Uh, Declan, do you want to take it away? Um, yeah, sorry, my computer would just got rid of all the questions for some reason. Um, so the, after that apology, the first question we have is looking (laughs) back at the, um, Major's 
conspiracy. How did you reflect on the reception, you know, the critical, popular and the fans? Because your dedication in the book, as James uh, said, was very lovely. Yeah, yeah, it uh, it was really interesting for me because I had never written any tie-in fiction before. You know, I, I have my own novels, um, a few novels out now of my own work. Um, and of course, these are my own work as well, but in my own universe, uh, not tie-in fiction. Uh, and uh, so I'm used to interacting with readers in that way, but I had never interacted with readers in an established universe before. Um, so there is some nervousness that goes along with that, definitely, where you feel like it would be so easy to wreck something that was very special to someone um, or to just tread on something that you didn't even realize you were doing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very possible that I did and I just haven't heard about it. But, um, you know, I, and I also accept that no book is going to please everyone. It's, you know, uh, it's a matter of taste and different people are going to resonate with different things. And that's totally fine. Uh, but overwhelmingly, um, the fans of the franchise were very enthusiastic about this book and, and interested in it. And um, I've had wonderful notes and especially the ones um, I've had a few people get in touch with me to say things like uh, that they had fallen out of the habit of reading and they hadn't been reading for years. And they picked up this book and it had had re-sparked a love of reading in them. Uh, or some people for whom English was their second language and it was tricky to get through the book, but they, they kept with it and, and uh, you know, because they really enjoyed the story, some very young readers and things like that. I think that's one of the joys for a writer of working in a franchise like this is that you end up um, having these relationships with readers that you never would have otherwise. Uh, so I really, that was a real joy for me uh, with the first one. And uh, yeah, so that all fed into what I was thinking when I dedicated the second for sure. That's lovely. It was um, it was certainly very very well received. And I don't know if you you saw it across your your news feeds, but um, there's a large Assassin's Creed fan community or fan group called Access the Animus, mm -hmm. and they did their Christmas award ceremony. And I believe Magus Conspiracy won their uh, best transmedia, which was quite nice to see. So uh, I did, yeah. I did see that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And uh, I'm always of two minds because, you know, I don't I. On the one hand, I know that I want to keep that space for readers and fans to discuss things without me, you know, waltzing in there and <laughs> saying, well, how'd you like my book? Um, but at the same time, I, I love to see that stuff. And, and I, that did cross my feet. And I was I was really, uh, really pleased and honored that uh, so many people voted for it and said they liked it. Nice, nice. That's, that's a, gives a nice warm glow, I guess, when uh, when you're thinking about uh, sort of working through the next one. Um, mm. All right. Um can we talk before we get into the story and, and the plot? Can we can we start with the cover art, which again Ooh. is just beautiful? Bastien Jez, is it who who is the artist yes. that creates the cover art? I mean, just mm. just stunning. Um, I did have a bit of a question here about what might happen in book three, but we'll skip that and um, just I want to ask a more general question. So, how does the art get created? Do you have an input to that? Does the artist just throw out some ideas and you gradually iterate towards the final version did you have a uh, an image in your mind of what Simeon and Pierre might look like and that informs the the cover art mm -hmm. yeah it's a really neat process and uh I should give a shout out to Nick Tyler who um plans and uh the cover and interior design for Aconite and Aconite Books is the publisher of, um, of these uh, two books and uh, other Assassin's Creed novels as well um, so Nick um, sent me an email when I was still working on 
the draft of book two and uh, said, okay, well, here are some of the elements that we're thinking of. Here's the brief that we're going to send to Bastian Jez, who's the artist. And uh, does this all make sense? And I think I, I tweaked a couple of things and said, oh, yeah, just, just actually, I think the, um, the note I had was just make sure that we know that Pierrette's older in this one, right? So I knew Pierrette was going to be on the cover and I wanted to make sure she wasn't 19 or something. Um, and uh, yeah, and it all it all made sense to me. So uh, so there's uh, the sort of design at the publisher. They think in, in big picture terms about what the design is going to look like. And then they give it to the artist to execute. Um, as I understand it, I'm not an expert on that side of things. Um, but that was really nice to have some input into that and make sure that it was all going to fit because uh, with tie-in fiction, the timelines can be a little bit shorter. Um, often with my other novels, I haven't had input at that phase, uh, but the cover art will come after I'm done copy edits and stuff with my other novels. And so, uh, you know, if I'm changing something or working on something in the draft, it's not going to be an issue, but because the timelines are a little bit shorter, I was working on the draft while the cover was being created. So I had to have a little bit of input and, and make sure that there were no, you know, that I wasn't changing something big that would then be on the cover. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think it worked out beautifully. I mean, both the covers for these books are so gorgeous and so intricate. Um, and I love the way that they're all, you know, they, they tell the story of the book in a certain way, but it's not until you read the book that you really understand the significance of everything on it. Very good. Declan, over to you, mate. I feel like I may have to pick up the books now and relook at the cover art and see if I can <laughs> deduce <laughs> anything from it. Um, are you able to set the scene for the listeners? Like, where do we leave Sam, Simon and Pierre at the end of Mage's Conspiracy? Mm -hmm. And where do we find them at the start of the resurrection plot? Yes. Uh, so uh, the end of the Mage's Conspiracy is the early 1860s. Um, and um, the, you know, uh, Pierrette has sort of finished her unofficial apprenticeship, you can say. She's, she's learned a lot from Simeon. Um, it's quite clear that she uh, is an assassin, but she has not had uh, any sort of formal training from the Brotherhood yet, except for what she's learned from Simeon. And so um, she's in a, a little bit of a different place from Simeon at that point. And, uh, you know, there's this recurring th theme throughout the Magus conspiracy that Simeon really seeks the shadows and he really seeks anonymity and Pierrat as a performer is not interested in that at all. And she's quite happy to be out there uh, getting the accolades for things and, uh, and doing daring do <laughs> right in everyone's face. Uh, so they, their paths diverge a little bit there where Simeon just wants to get away from everything. He's got this sort of, uh, unwanted, um, fame now in England because of uh, some things that he's done. And, and he just says, okay, I just want to get away from it all. So he goes off and for seven years, we don't see them. They have they have separate paths. And uh, those seven years, um, somewhat coincidentally, uh, cover the period of Syndicate, of the game Syndicate. So by the time we pick back up with Pierrot and Simeon, uh, the Fry twins have already cleared out London uh, in, the, in the game Syndicate. And uh, that has happened. And in the meantime, Pierrot left London because she was getting frustrated um, and, you know, wanted to act more quickly, you know, much like... Uh, Evie and Jacob, and especially Jacob in that way, she was getting frustrated with uh, with not taking action. So she ended up going to Egypt as a way to uh, deepen her knowledge of the history of the Brotherhood and the history of artifacts, and uh, and also as a way to sort of just get out of a place that was not good for her and, and 
um, causing her to uh, have some friction with uh, with the other assassins. Uh, so when we pick up uh, with her, uh, it's 1869, it's seven years later, and she is in Cairo, having a whale of a time, uh, enjoying herself immensely. Um, and um, some people, there's uh, an assassin there that she knows from the old days, uh, which is great. Um, and Simeon has been off in Russia having adventures, and <clears throat> he's really been trying to uh, trying to keep young men out of tr- out of trouble. Uh, seems to be his thing. He, you know, as a former young man in trouble himself, he um, he really wants to uh, channel the energy and the legitimate anger many people have about what's happening in their world into positive things. And so he's been trying to do that and not always succeeding. Um, and then he, uh, he ends up following a hunch, following a trail back to Egypt and there he meets Pierrette again and they have another adventure. Was the, um, was the plot, oh no, let me, let me reverse that, slightly change that question. How much of that plot, that setup, had you already mentally sketched out before you started writing Resurrection Plot or did you sit down at the end of Magus Conspiracy, write new piece of paper, new story, what am I going to do next? I had sketched out the basic shape of it. Um, you know, when when we started the Megas Conspiracy, even though we only um, we've only contracted one book at a time, and and so nothing was official or, or firmed up for uh, for the second book. But uh, I had an idea of what could how the story could continue. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to write the Megas Conspiracy in a way that it could. Uh, it could stand on its own, but that there would be threads to pick up if, if possible for a second book. Um, so <clears throat> I had uh, already sketched out a basic plot uh, and talked about it a little bit with my editors about what might happen. Uh, and so I had the basic bones of the story in my head already. Um, so there, it was not, um, it was not a, a moment where I had to think, oh no, now I've got, <laughs> I've got to come up with with something else because I had a basic idea of, of where I would want to take them and um and the sort of themes that I would want to explore as well I think with the um you know the the first book uh to go into my political science nerd mode for a second you know the first book has a lot to do with uh uh tyranny and and freedom and and uh state governments national governments and and how uh people interact with them you know, from an Assassin's Creed perspective. Uh, in the second book, we see a lot more of empire and um, especially the coming into the scramble for Africa and the European powers trying to get get their hands all over Africa. Um, so um, I knew that I wanted to move into that global realm a little bit more and there'd be new technologies. And I knew that my two assassins would be getting older and, um, you know, maybe having different views on, on all of that. So um, one of the greatest things about being an Assassin's Creed fan and probably something you probably did as well with the books is AC Wiki is a treasure trove of wealth. Now, I know in your interview with James last year, you did mention a lot that you like to do a lot of over-research and uh, what's the word? Diving into little corners to get all the knowledge you can. How much time did you spend on AC Wiki? Because I think I'm racking up about hundreds of hours here. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, yeah, a lot. I use it a lot, um, and it's it's a fantastic resource and um, so helpful. 
Uh, and so fascinating. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure like you as well, I can uh, open something up and be three hours later, uh, yep. <laughs> you know, still down, down the rabbit hole. Um, yep. So I use every, it a lot. Every creative project <laughs> is built upon that wiki. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's, it's so great. And especially to remind yourself of something, right? Like, you know, you think, oh, okay, well, I know I've seen that character, you know, didn't, didn't George Westhouse say such and such at one point. And then, you know, the wiki is great for that kind of thing where you don't have to go back and play the whole game to remember what it was that you have in the back of your mind or um, <clears throat> connections between things or other media that you might want to check out that would mention a, an artifact or a, a character. Um, so it was really useful for me that way. Um, you know, I treat it much the same way that I treat Wikipedia with research in general is that it's always a starting place and usually it leads me to other sources. And, um, you know, so I don't use it as a final, uh, an end of the road for fact checking. Usually it's just a place to remind myself of something or to send me to another source. Um, but it's, it's wonderful. Such a great resource to have. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you have to play Syndicate again just to ch check some of the dialogue and so on and characterizations? <laughs> I played it a bit again, yeah. Yeah, although I've been playing Unity lately. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I know your favorite. <laughs> yeah. How does so, everyone uh, know that? Do I keep, I keep saying it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. 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 yeah, I played a bit of Syndicate again to rem remind myself of some cutscenes, I think, that mm. I wanted to make sure that I was not, you know, contradicting or, you know, because there's a little... There's a little bit um, of, of, of some references and that kind of thing that I wanted to make sure that I wasn't contradicting anything in Syndicate, um, even though I very deliberately kind of skipped over that period because this is not, mm. you know, the novelization of Syndicate um, and I wanted to have it be its own story. Uh, so, so none of the resurrection plot actually overlaps with that period. Yeah, but it does dovetail nicely between two. We'll come to this. We'll come to this. Uh, right, mustn't get ahead of ourselves. Um, <laughs> so um, you, you said you know you had some ideas of of the plot and and the sort of major moves, let's say, of of um, resurrection plot. Um, but were there any ideas that you had um, for the second book that that became problematic as you'd finished the first book? Did you kind of back yourself into any? narrative corners that you then had to sort of creatively write your way out of or did it, it did it all flow quite sort of logically and nicely from one era into the next um it flowed pretty nicely i think in terms of um the the storyline of the first book i don't recall any problems that i created for myself there um you know there were probably just a few minor tweaks and things where i had envisioned the character a certain way or something and and had to um just change a few tiny things like that uh, but the, the main problem that I had in the second book which had nothing to do with the first really was just that I bit off you know a pretty big time period and in, in many countries which I had done in the first but even more so in the second and I had so many things that I wanted to pack into it so um, my editor and I had to really kind of streamline things and, and think okay how are we going to keep the <clears throat> keep the pacing working for the reader while we get through um, this, uh, this vast landscape of two decades of European history and, uh, and these two assassins lives within it. And I think we got there, but it was, it was a struggle to make sure that it wasn't just, you know, boom, 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 these things happen one after another and that it wasn't, um, you know, just a big history lesson as well, which is always the danger is that you end up just sounding like a Wikipedia article or something because you're trying to convey so much information in a, a short space. So that didn't really have honest. anything to do with the first book, but, yeah. um, it was the biggest challenge with the second. 
Mm. It's um, it's kind of handy that Simeon, um, he's quite a deep thinker. He can, he can spend quite a long time just away in a cabin <laughs> thinking about <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> that that exactly. helps the time uh, skip on, you know. It really does, um, yeah. You, uh, I, I did um, 19th century European history at school. It's very, very mm. boring, very serious topic. Mm. And um, there was something you mentioned in the book. I was like, that's the Berlin Conference. I've done that. I know where this is going. <laughs> this is the age of empire. This is dividing up Africa. Anyway, it was, uh, yeah. let's, um, let's. Uh, oh, we're going to come on to that. Sorry, I'm, I, I'm reading ahead. We've got to be organized. This is a professional show. Um, <laughs> so Magus Conspiracy was... An action adventure. Um, Simeon and Pierre go through go through lots of um, in, in their stories there, but it was also an origin story um, for both of the characters. You had to set them up and establish their backstories and show them um, joining the Brotherhood, understanding the creed. Um, how would you define resurrection plot? And is it is it a nice change or just just a different challenge to to start the book with characters who were already established? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is a challenge for me. I haven't written a lot of sequels. So this is the only only the second time I've written a sequel. I have a duology of novellas as well, and that was a similar challenge. Um, so I'm not used to you know I'm used to writing standalones, and uh, it is a challenge for me to be able to think about a fresh arc for the characters and think, okay, we've seen these characters go through a big transformation already. We've seen them grow and change. <clears throat> excuse me and now we have to do it all over again with the same characters uh, but so what what would be the next phase for them or what would change for them and that's always a little bit of a challenge uh for me um so even though it was nice because you know like everyone else I think like the readers too it's nice to revisit someone that you spent so much time with and you think ah yes I it's great to be back with these with these characters um but it is difficult as an author to think uh about what uh, they might go through next that would be a compelling story to tell um so yeah well the first one i think is is the origin story uh this one you know has a lot to do with with the past and how the past shapes us especially you know as we get older how how do we um see our responsibility to the community how do we see our our uh, our role um um, as teachers and guides of the future. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, Simeon's uh, project of trying to root out troubled young people and, and, and guide them uh, is part of that. Uh, and also, I think, you know, I love titles that have kind of multiple meanings and multiple levels. And so the, the resurrection aspect of it, the, the idea that there are things in our past that are never quite gone, you know, that, that, that they will always come back. Um, to us and uh, so I think that's what I was trying to explore with this one as a second book very nice very nice um so I've lost it again my computer's not playing ball tonight um one of the most interesting things about books is they usually pick one or two locations to focus on and try and tell a streamlined story but here we actually have a globe trotting adventure which was kind of like mind melding to read in such a small book i was expecting to be bigger so did that make it harder to research because i know you did touch upon trying to streamline it and if it went into a massive history lesson i still would have read it because i know nothing <laughs> of that time period but was it just harder in general just to research every point and make them align together yeah definitely it's uh it's a challenge because um 
you know, you might have just two or three chapters in a given time and place, and uh, you've got to learn enough to make that immersive and accurate and uh, figure out what the story, how the story is going to intersect with that setting. Uh, and then two chapters later, you've got to do it all over again. Uh, so yeah, that, uh, and I, I've, I've tended to do that a little bit in some of my books as well. Um, my other books is that I'll take a big time and a big canvas, um, which does require a lot of research. Luckily, I really like research, uh, but uh, it was a challenge for this book in particular and, and uh, really disparate topics like, um, you know, the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War um, is a big uh, part of the book for a certain period. Uh, but then we had yeah. the, uh, the opening of the Suez Canal in Cairo before that, you know, very different sets of research books uh, on my shelf for those things and really interesting. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about that for myself is that I've really enjoyed with these two books um, covering this, this span of history so quickly and, and, and over so many different countries. And you really start to get a sense of how, you know, one thing really does lead into another and, and you can trace, you know, the, um, the rise of anarchism and, and, uh, and the rise of empire and all of these forces that were happening in Europe at the time and beyond Europe. Uh, and so I found that really interesting that, that moving from the Suez Canal to the Franco-Prussian War, I could see the connections between them and I could see how it is all one story uh, in a way. So even though it was, you know, it required a lot of reading, um, I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. So another thing that um, I quite noticed is Assassin's Creed is very focused on combat and action with a sprinkle of philosophy but one thing that really stood out to me with the major's conspiracy and a lot again in um the resurrection plays you've chosen that to make a good blend of combat and action but there is a huge emphasis on philosophy and how the creed is viewed and i was always wondering what was your reasoning behind trying to create a story that focuses a lot on the philosophy and the creed over just straight up action and combat um orientated mm-hmm yeah, I think part of it is for me, um, just that that's something that I find really interesting personally. Uh, so, uh, you know, always when you're telling a story, uh, it helps if you're engaging with the aspects of it that are most interesting to you as a writer, because, you know, then you get the most authentic uh, connection with the reader, I think, that way. Um, you know, I could write a story that um, focused on the aspects that I don't find as compelling, um, although there aren't that many because I, I I enjoy all aspects of it. But, you know, I think that's always stood out to me um, as a really interesting, uh, you know, fascinating part of the games is uh, the, the paradoxes uh, at the center of, uh, of the creed and, and the axioms and, um, uh, and just the, the whole focus on the role of the individual in society. And, um, you know, that it's not, only about uh combat and adventure and uh and cool stuff um but also that there is there are some interesting questions that it's exploring um so i think just because for me i found that really interesting it was an obvious way for me to key into it and think okay well what can i bring to this what can i uh elaborate on here that i think would be interesting and because i do have um you know a love of history and, and because I, I do have a political science background i'm always interested in political philosophy as well. So it was just a natural fit for me, I think. And I think, you know, that's one of the great things about having a universe like this, where there are multiple 
writers working on it is that different writers bring different strengths. And, you know, someone with a martial arts background is going to write a fantastic Assassin's Creed novel that I could never write because that's not my background and I would love to read it, you know, and I have, and, but, but it's not something that, that I can bring as a strength, but I think I want my to know now is... which, which author has a martial arts background. That, that's an interesting <laughs> uh, segue we should take. <laughs> it would be an interesting discussion actually of the different yeah. backgrounds of Assassin's Creed writers. Mm. Cause I think there are mm. a few, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, Anyway, this is this is a digression, but uh, yeah, like you know, Elsa Kunison, who's um, who's written uh, the Sword of the White Horse, I know, yeah. um, has done some fencing, for example, I think quite a lot of fencing, uh, you know. So I think that that those kinds of things in our backgrounds will probably affect the way that we write, um, we you know, what engages us as a storyteller. Um, so yeah, that would be a, a fun thing to look at sometime is is how all of that comes together. I'm sorry, hay fever is just about to uh, kick my butt. Um, let's try. Let's try and keep going. Let's stay professional. Uh, what, I'll, what I'll, before I uh, read the uh, next question, I will just explain to listeners. So, um, preparing for the show, we um, we contacted Aconite, and we needed to make sure that we weren't sort of uh, discussing future plans, which is fine. We don't want to. We don't want to speculate. We we don't do spoilers or, or leaks on this show so we're fine with that but we did get um, our our questions together and uh, and proofread and, and to be honest with you question 12 it's not really a question i just wrote playing cards with evie fry <laughs> that was great uh, so let, i've got to try and think now how, how can i turn that statement into a question um uh, when when did the idea come when you thought you know what see i've got an i've got a feeling that evie fry would be lethal at cards because she's yeah. so analytical she would be counting the cards she'd be yeah. thinking five moves ahead uh when, when did you get thought that i want evie fry in the story um actually this is how we're gonna we're gonna bring her in how did that come about yeah i uh i, I don't remember exactly why i decided that cards would be the thing i needed i needed a way to um get some information out of somebody and, and it seemed like a good period appropriate thing to do and I thought oh yeah I know who would be really good at cards um and just the the characters that I have in that room you know the three three women um who who come together for that card game with a fourth um you know they're all so different but they're so I, I could see how each of them would play cards you know and I could I thought oh this will be fun this will be fun to uh, uh to see how how their strengths play out in this card game um and you'll laugh at this because this is an example of my weird over research but i decided that it should be a game of whist because that was a very popular game at the time but i don't play whist so what i did was i downloaded a whist app on my phone and i learned how to play whist and i decided exactly which hands they would play i played out a game and i said okay these are the hands they're going to play and then for like six or seven months afterwards, I was still addicted to playing Whist on my phone. And oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's all. Awesome. I love Whist and partner Whist is good fun as well. If you ever, if that came up in your research at all, if you've got a, a group of four, that's uh, that's always good fun as well. We'll play cards sometimes. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. And also just, just to briefly mention, and yes, we are heading into spoilers here. We, we will have a spoiler warning on the episode before people listen. Um, we've got some Ethan Fry action, which is nice because he's not really mentioned in in the pre-existing um content other than he was their father and i think i actually forget he died he died just before the events of Seneca, but i can't remember why was, was it a was it an unfortunate templar accident or was it 
natural causes. I can't remember, but it's nice that there's a bit more backstory to Ethan Fry. Yeah. Um, we get a bit of George Westhouse in there because he, he, again, tiny part in Syndicate. He's a rather tired, washed up older assassin. You know, he's, he's kind of run out of energy, but we see more sides to these characters and it's great that they get a bit more um, airtime, you know, to uh, to flesh out their stories. Yeah. Yeah. Th- it was great to do that. And I, I was so careful. I wanted to make sure that I hadn't you know, uh, misconstrued those characters, you know, because when you're working with characters that are part of canon already, it's uh, uh, always a little bit nerve wracking to pick them up and, and, you know, start playing with the action figures (laughs) yourself. Um, But uh, yeah, and I think uh, I'm trying to remember if I have the right title, but I think it's Underworld by Oliver Bowden, which is Mm. the the book that covers Mm. a little bit more of Ethan Fry and kind of leads into Syndicate and um, so I read that one as well and made sure that I wasn't contradicting anything there. Um, yeah, because uh, it was interesting for me to think about how Pierrette would fit into the British assassins at that time uh, without trying to, you know, uh, without wrecking any of the other uh, things that had already been created in that that time and place. As, as you said earlier, I think um, I can understand why she would have left the UK for Egypt, because I'm guessing the British assassins at the time would have seen Pierre as like a force of nature. Yes. <laughs> you know, just yeah. Causing, yeah. just wanting to get stuff done and they're so cautious, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, I thought that'd be, that would immediately cause a lot of tension uh, in mm, interesting ways. But uh, yes, mm, it's, it made sense to me that she would go somewhere else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Declan, over to you, mate. So um, I'm just going to put a brief spoiler warning here for the next question. So um, I would advise if you don't want spoilers, don't listen for like five minutes. <laughs> um, now, I will say backstory. When this came up, I did have a huge fallout on Discord <laughs> because this piece of Eden mentioned is one of my most intrigued pieces of Eden because... Ubisoft mentioned it in Transmedia, it was then disappeared, Origins skipped out on it, even though the DLC should have had it in, and that is the Ankh, which is probably one of my favourite pieces of Eden because of Valhalla's lore, and I wanted to ask, when in your writing process did you pick up on that device? Because my whole problem with the Ankh is it's been forgotten by Ubisoft when there is a lot of places it could fit whereas now all of a sudden it's back and it makes a lot of sense to be back mm-hmm. yeah yeah it was I was trying to remember as, as I was getting ready for this podcast where exactly the idea came from and I went I looked in my notes and I have it in my very first notes from when I was working on Megas Conspiracy I thought oh I had notes about what book two could be and I have, uh, oh, they go to Egypt and and, and uh, the Ankh is involved. Um, and I don't know whether it's only because I wanted to be in Egypt and I, you know, the association, I guess, was pretty obvious that, okay, well, if I'm going to look at an artifact, what would be one that would make sense in that setting? Um, I think that's that's where it came from is I thought, I knew that, that um, I wanted the opening of the Suez Canal to be uh, one of the historical events uh, that I would look at. And, uh, uh, and I think it also, you know, it kind of appealed to me on a thematic level as well, because as I was saying that the sort of ideas about, um, the dead and about, uh, the past and, 
things that I wanted to explore in this book, uh, it just seemed to fit in as an artifact for that as well. But yeah, it is, it, it's an interesting one because you kind of have to follow little bits and pieces all over different media to put the story of the Ankh together. And, uh, and also I wanted to kind of make sure that I wasn't tying the hands of, of future writers and future games in any way as well, that would be in a way that would uh, be harmful to anything happening in the future. So, you know, what I was going to do with this artifact and, and where I was going to leave it and all of that, uh, I was very conscious that I was trying to fit into a larger universe with this um, and very careful about how I did that. Um, so, but it was, it was lots of fun to work with. And I think it's such an interesting artifact too, because um, exactly how it works and what it does. Uh, we've seen little glimpses of it here and there. Um, uh, so it was, it was fun to think about, uh, you know, looking at, taking another look at it and, and seeing how this would work into this story. I, uh, I need to make a confession. Um, so we got the, the preview version of, of the novel a couple of months ago. And, um, when that word appears in the text, I was like, Oh, and then I have, I, this is my confession. I didn't know that was a piece of Eden. I went straight to the wiki and was like, oh, there's this piece of Eden. There's a whole history where it's appeared. It's only appeared at a few points in kind of the, the timeline, but I didn't even know it was a pre-existing piece of Eden. So anyway, yeah, I guess yeah. you can't know everything because it's a rather sprawling um, universe, isn't it? But uh, yeah, it was, it it was uh, yeah. nice. And Declan makes a good point. Why wasn't it in Origins if there's this pre-established piece of Egyptian kind of iconography, you know? But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, and it is. Uh, it does seem to have a quite a mysterious, uh, mysterious history that <laughs> that mm. object. So yeah, I mean, it was it was fun to play with for sure. Absolutely, and now you've been able to nail it down to a specific time and place, and mm. specific people, and and all the rest of it. And, and uh, sorry, I think, mate, go on. Sorry, I was going to say, I think I'm like very glad that you had it in the book because mm. a lot of Assassin's Creed lately has been pushing onto the idea of resurrection, you know, Valhalla with the sages, Valhalla's DLC looked at, you know, the Isu trying to do resurrection, the Bing Storm even touches on resurrection. So there's all these plot threads in the universe canon and not canon for resurrection and the anchor's just missing from it all and for you to then push it back into canon saying, you know, this still exists please use it at some point it just felt good and i think pierre made a good point just drop all of the devices at the bottom of the sea you know <laughs> yeah. just be done with I, it i love that line when i read that i was like yeah this would just be so much easier if everyone dumped them all in the sea <laughs> and forget all about them yeah 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 she doesn't really have a sense of of things being sacred and um you know very practical-minded woman our pirate for sure mm. Mm. Um, let's talk a little more about Simeon and uh, Pierrette then. So um, what we see more um, in in Resurrection Plot compared to Magus Conspiracy is there's a lot more friction between the mm -hmm. two of them, sometimes under the surface, sometimes very, very visible. Um, again, was that just a natural evolution that you had planned and saw would, would sort of naturally occur? Was it intended to maybe be a little bit of... Um, a reflection of, of free will versus order with Pierre being a little bit more free spirited and Simeon being a little more measured and ordered or, or how, how did that sort of uh, dynamic come about? Yeah, definitely. Um, I do think they represent different 
tendencies along that spectrum of of the paradoxes you know that that we talk about so much uh, with assassin's creed and um you know they uh and, and i think that's one reason that they work together well but of course as with any working relationship or or personal relationship uh, you know often the differences that are a source of strength can also be a source of tension and so i think with them that's uh, that's always the case is that it it helps them to work together well uh but at the same time sometimes you get to a point where it's incompatible where you just have two views of the world that are are not going to reconcile um and at those points you have to decide okay well is our friendship and and is our brotherhood is 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 our relationship strong enough to to carry us through that in some way and and uh, to give the other person a little bit of slack and to say okay well you're not behaving the way i would behave but i know you and i trust you and that's okay and so that was really interesting to me as a dynamic to explore uh, with the two of them. And I think it's really interesting too, to see that, that mentor student relationship later on, you know, when you have, uh, when you have to sort of rethink the relationship because the other person is not a student anymore. Um, but you're always going to have a little bit of deference, a little bit of, uh, you're never going to get rid of, of those vestiges of, of that relationship that you started with. Uh, so, you know, it's always interesting when you, interact with someone who was, you know, your first boss or your, you know, university professor or whoever it is, you know, even if your peers and colleagues later on, there's still a certain awkwardness and a certain um, need to impress or something like that. Uh, so um, that's not something that I've been able to explore a lot in fiction before. So I just thought it would be an interesting one uh, for this book, especially because it's a neat, it's one of the great things about writing uh, more than one book is that, uh, you know, you do get to follow people through different phases of how they interact with each other. They're still basically Anakin and Ahsoka, aren't they? They That's are basically very much yeah. Anakin and Ahsoka. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that was definitely, you know, sort of the, the template or the, uh, the trope that I had in my head when I first conceived of them. And, and I think it, it kind of holds true uh, in the second book as well. I love it. We, uh, my my eldest daughter and I, we went to the. This is completely off topic. We went to uh, the Star Wars celebration event that was in London a couple of months ago. So we've been consuming a lot of Star Wars media over the last three or four months. So we we can talk about Rebels and uh, Clone Wars and all the rest. Anyway, let's get back to the uh, to the plot. What are we here to talk about? Um, Ashley Declan, I think the next one is yours. Um. Yeah. So the next question we have is um, Amira's favorite writer is George Sand. Did you put a little bit of your own in that sentence? Not a huge amount. I haven't read a lot of George Sand, although, um, you know, so for those who don't know, George Sand, uh, despite the name, was a woman who lived in 19th century Paris. And um, I hadn't read a lot of her work, but she kept coming up when I was researching this period. Uh, and especially oh, because she wrote these wonderful letters um during the uh, the Franco-Prussian War and the the siege of Paris and, and the Paris Commune afterwards, um, and uh, she wrote these letters to to Emile Zola and and to other people and and so those were a great source for me to understand what people were thinking at the time and what it, what it seemed like to be in Paris then. Um, so yeah, so I just found her such an interesting figure, and I had always thought that um, Amira uh, would be. Um, a little bit like her in some way, the sort of, you know, dressing in trousers and publishing things and, uh, you know, being part of the, the world of letters uh, and, and uh, newspapers. 
um, in Paris at that time uh, that she would be a little bit of a role model for Amira because not only as a writer but also just as a person and as a figure of that time um, so uh, yeah so she was uh, seemed like a natural person to reference there and uh, there's, there's quite a few writers and books that that crop up um, throughout the resurrection plot as kind of touchstones for for various characters, you know, Simeon uh, is continues to be a bit bookish, uh, so he uh, he's reading all of the, the the books coming out at the time, and and Gamal is a is a book trader, and uh, so I got a lot of kind of writerly uh, fan <laughs> fan notes into uh, into this book for sure. It's something that I've thought more and more recently. Maybe this is really obvious to everyone listening, and, and to, to you and to Declan, but more and more recently, I've you know, assassins. We think of that we. We play games and we kill the bad guys, you know, mm-hmm. um, and we look cool doing it. That's the idea of being an assassin. But uh, more and more, I think they're actually their teachers, they're educators. It's knowledge that they want to preserve more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that they they read widely, they they distribute books, they collect books, they collect knowledge. That feels really in character for assassins, mm-hmm. really. And um, they might yeah. start out with hidden blades, but they end up as as teachers, mentors, as as we would say, I suppose, in the uh, in the parlance yeah absolutely i think you know the libraries and books crop up you know throughout the universe and i and i think really it's when we're talking about free will and uh, and freedom then uh, books have to be a part of that so it seemed like a natural mm. fit mm, yeah yeah um <laughs> this is more of a more of an observation i guess than than a question this one but um, as i was reading um resurrection plot I noticed that quite frequently you describe how different rooms smell. And um, there was one quote that really stuck in my mind. I highlighted it on my Kindle, I remember. And um, I wondered if it was informed from your time as a a newspaper journalist, because you described a room as smelling of stale tobacco and sandwich crumbs, which I just think is a great visual (laughs) picture or or, uh, I don't know, uh, what's the right word? Um, smell uh, picture whatever the right word is of a room. Yeah. old factory picture thank you yeah, yeah. Um, is, did that come from there or where, where did this little thread of throughout the book of different rooms having really distinctive smells come from yeah yeah that's um I, I think I do try to do it deliberately because um I uh, I'm naturally not a really great descriptive writer uh, which often surprises people because my books tend to be quite descriptive but I have to do it on purpose because if I am left to my own devices everything happens in a white room and you wouldn't know where anyone is and it's just two people talking um, so I have learned to deliberately ask myself these questions you know what does it smell like what does it look like what are the sounds that they're hearing and that kind of thing and the other thing is especially with these books <clears throat> um when I started out uh, trying to decide how I wanted to approach writing an Assassin's Creed book, um, I thought, well, what are the things that make, you know, playing an Assassin's Creed game um, special? And uh, and there were a few things, but one of them was that sense of immersion of, you know, saying, okay, I am up on the rooftops in this city. This is so cool that I am, I am here in this historical place where I'm never going to be able to go in real life and I can... I can really experience that. And so that sense of immersion, I wanted to carry over in some sense into fiction and the strengths of the novel, you know, the novel can never give you that. It can never give you that sense of standing on the rooftops um, or, you know, wherever it's going to be, you can't be on the pyramid um, or up in the trees, but, uh, but you can have those words and those descriptions uh, that have a, a 
a similar purpose, I guess. Um, so with these nozzles, I was very, very deliberate about thinking every time I went into a new setting, okay, what does it smell like? What does it sound like? Um, so definitely, I'm sure the newsroom probably came into that description, although I probably would have had stale pizza in there too, if it had been period appropriate. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. We can do separate research on when pizza was invented and you know, <laughs> yeah. which country came up with it first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, I did enjoy that. Stale tobacco and sandwich crumbs. Yeah, that's stuck in my mind for sure. Over to you, Declan. I'm trying to imagine what uh, sandwich crumbs smell like because mm. to me, sandwich doesn't have really much of a smell unless you put something strong in it. So I it's couldn't ima imagine stale crumbs, but I know what stale tobacco smells like. So Yeah, yeah. Maybe I had a particular sandwich once and it stuck in my head or something. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the next question, Simon and Constance relationship. Now, mm -hmm. I was actually the same as James when he wrote this. We always did suspect that she would betray him. And now, do we actually interpret that too simply? Was that her goal? Was she actually meant to be a double agent? Because as a reader, we always are looking for like the next plot twist, the next surprise. Like, oh, will they betray them? Mm -hmm. So in that kind of moment, is it hard to keep the surprise when you're writing? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, this is another a spoiler warning, um, but uh, I think the whole, the whole episode <laughs> not be will probably have for to that. have spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as with as with the first book, too, you know, like there are, you know, there's some things that you might see coming and you think, OK, well, I'm not sure about this person. I think they may they may betray uh, Simeon. Um, and uh, and I was aware of that in both books that you think, OK, well, with twists like that, it's always uh, a difficult line to walk because some people are going to figure it out and uh, you don't want it to be empty and hollow and just be like, well, I figured it out. So what's the point of reading the book? So, yeah, I think you have to make it deeper in some way and say, OK, well, why? Why did this person, you know, why would Simeon sort of go down this road knowing this is possible? Why, you know, why do these characters act this way? So that even when the change happens, when a betrayal happens, the reader's not feeling cheated, like, well, I just read this whole thing and it, the obvious thing happened. Or sometimes you don't see it coming, um, you know, and, and and then you have to think about, well, that experience as well. So, you know, writing a twist, I think the twist can never be the only thing holding the book together or else it's, it's going to be disappointing for both people who figure it out and people who don't. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think, you know, exploring the sort of psychological aspects of it was important for me. And I think with... Costanza like <clears throat> she my own I, I left it a little bit ambiguous I mean my own personal headcanon is that she all along had ulterior motives for getting closer to Simeon and, and we find out what those are and she um, you know she really did have this plan for using him and could see a way forward to do that and at the same time she always was attracted to him we saw that right away when they met in Vienna in the first book and I honestly believe that she did fall in love with him, um, but that she chose, uh, you know, she chose the path that she thought, the path to power, basically. For her, even though she was in love with him, power was more seductive to her and that she saw a way to use that and she went for it and she made that choice to betray somebody she loved. Um, I think you could also read it in other ways. You could read it as... Um, you know, you could read it as a, a plan she always had from the beginning and she was just cold hearted all the way through. 
um, you know, it's hard to say. And I, I kind of like the idea that, uh, that it's ambiguous because um, we, we never get her perspective on it. We only ever have. That's a Simeon's. really good point. Of course, it's written from his perspective. We don't know what mm-hmm. she's thinking. And, and when, when the, the story was, was leading to them having a relationship, I was in my head, I was saying, come on, Simeon, you're wiser than that. This, yeah. you can't do it. And he did, you know, anyway, yeah. <laughs> he did it anyway, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was so conscious of that too. I was thinking like, you know, so many readers are going to be saying like, what are you thinking? Um, so <laughs> it was, uh, I, I really wanted it to be not just him being let, you know, I, I wanted him to be kind of aware that, okay, this is a risk but it's one that I'm going to take with my eyes wide open and I believe that it's worth doing. Um, but it was, it was frustrating for me as well to just think, you know, like, geez. <laughs> but I think it works for him. He, Pierrette would never do that. She's no. very, she's very clear. Yeah. It's us or them, yeah. you know, but he is more, I don't know what the right word is, open-minded, more reflective, maybe more hopeful yeah. of these things are worth a try. Yeah. Um. So I can't blame him, but yeah, I do remember reading that bit going, oh, come on, mate. <laughs> this is <laughs> this not going to end, end well. well. No. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You think... don't know how exactly, but it's not going to end well, no. Yeah. yeah. I think I was slightly different at that point. Um, when I got that, I was actually hoping that their relationship was going to work out and things were going to go better for him because you know, the way the things were, the major conspiracy and all he's been through with becoming an assassin and everything that happened in the major conspiracy, I was like, come on. Some good news for him. He can settle down. She may change her ways. She may be better yeah. for you. So I was yeah. rooting for them. I was like, come oh, on, this can change. And yeah. then when we got the twist, I was like, well, that was not nice. He could have, <laughs> yeah. he could have done it. He could have been better for Simeon. You could have, but. Yeah. But yeah. I was Simeon. Every time Simeon gets close to happiness, it just, you know. <laughs> it just yeah. never, yeah, yeah. I think he's, you know, at heart, he's a bit of a romantic. You know, he had that relationship in Italy back in the day. Mm. And he, you know, mm. I think he kind of would just like to have that life, a quiet life with somebody that he loves. And um, he never gets it. But, uh, you know, the, uh, and I wanted it to feel that way too, that, that it felt believable that maybe she could make that choice that, um, you know, because we've seen in, in this universe, we've seen people, go from one side to the other and it's not out of the realm of possibility that that a templar could become an assassin and mm. um you mm. know so so that was always a possibility for her if she if she chose that um so yeah uh, yeah it's interesting to see that t- that two different readers had different feelings at that moment which is perfect that's exactly <laughs> what i was going for so that's great <laughs> it worked well yeah and that's um in, in that sort of segment of the story you know um constanz is being educated in the assassin's beliefs the creed um and over time at least as we see it from simeon's perspective um she comes to sort of respect and understand and support their approach and ends up working for them but let let, let's ask the writer so in your in your mind as you were writing constance did she really believe all that assassin stuff or was it just a long term was she playing the long game to uh to get what she wanted do you think yeah or that's an both, interesting maybe? question yeah i think i honestly think it is a bit of both and i think i think honestly she probably was never 100 percent a templar either you know i think she's mm. she's kind of out for herself that de- yeah that definitely comes across i think yeah, yeah i think she's she's sort of she's had this terrible upbringing and and um you know terrible in some ways and uh i think 
she she does just have this this terror of of not being in control and not having power and uh and to her that's what really matters and so the the templars seem to serve that goal for her the best but i don't know if she ever really believed it either and i think she does find a lot about the assassins really um attractive as well you know not just simeon but 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 all of it and i think some part of her wishes that she could just say okay yeah this is this is who i am but she can't ever let go of that part of herself that's out that's out to to mold the world and and to be the one in control of everything yeah. and um so yeah i think that's kind of her tragedy hmm. we look forward to the the side novel in the future that is the uh, retold from the point of view of uh, constanz you know <laughs> be very cool yeah maybe it's a it whole would. other story if you look at it from her view absolutely yeah. absolutely uh Declan do you want to take the next one oh, I've kind of lost the document where's the next one um I'm ready if you're not don't worry yes I you felt, do that's that that's why we have two of us you read the next one because my google docs has decided to give up it was no your no mic at the start it's down my google docs <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um this is kind of a very specific question. And again, we're, we're sort of into the end game of, of the story and the spoilers. So um, let's talk about Gisela, Constanze's um, daughter, mm-hmm. Simeon's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless I missed a line, you did not make that obvious in the book, which is great. Because when she appeared as a character with Constanze, I thought, wait a second, is she Simeon's daughter? And it was a nice sort of build up to that reveal. That was great. Um, but my question was, so when Constance changed her approach, changed her mind about working with the assassins, was she pregnant at that point? Was that actually what caused her to rethink her? She wanted to make the world right as she saw it for Gisela. Did that change? Mm-hmm. Is that what the change was there? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting. I have I have notes like tracking the exact month by month, you know, okay, well, how far <laughs> would she have been along there? Mm. And I do think that I decided that she was pregnant when she came back to the cabin, that she okay. knew. Um, and she decided anyway. Um, and yeah, I mean, that would be an interesting one for that side novel is to explore why that, you know, right. what, you know, where, where was that in her mind? Um, because to me, that was sort of a second aspect of uh, of of their separation there that that uh, sort of another knife in the gut for for Simeon is that she didn't yeah. she could have told him then and she didn't um yeah. I because I had an idea that she would know at that point and, and she didn't tell him or maybe if things had just unfolded slightly differently maybe she'd meant to tell him that night or the next day mm. and things went the way they did and uh and she never got the chance and just decided okay well I'm on my own as I've always been on my own and that's that's how it's going to be um so yeah i i i don't know i think it's a lot of it is uh because it was from simeon's perspective i'm I'm not sure exactly what was in her mind but i definitely had had a thought that it was right around that time uh that she found out and you know maybe when she was over in berlin and she was traveling and 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 realized it yeah yeah all right we should be kept wondering about that but uh yes you know we we can't we're not going to ask you any questions about the future um, because that, that would not be right. Um, I'm just going to say hashtag justice for Simeon. Let the man have some peace, <laughs> some happiness, <laughs> something to go right peace. in his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly for Simeon. Yeah, and I do feel that, um, you know, I think he's, uh, I, I was aware that, you know, both with him and, and with, with his daughter at the end, that 
you know, you don't want him to just seem like a fool that that he's just mm-hmm. having these things sneak up on him and the reader's going like, isn't it obvious? You know, like, um, so so I was conscious that there, there was a danger there with him because he does get these these terrible uh, betrayals that that maybe he would just be annoyingly out of it. Um, but I don't think, you know, <clears throat> some readers may feel that way. Oh, my cat's sneezing behind me. Um, but I don't feel that way about him because I think he does... He does just choose these things uh, deliberately to say, okay, um, you know, I am going to open myself up in some way and I'm going to take that, that risk, that leap of faith in a sense that I'm, I'm going to, to have faith yeah. in other people. And I know that it's going to bite me over and over again, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. And I think that's his particular kind of courage. And, uh, and we see it in this book um, that he loses it at a certain point. He loses that faith in other people and he sort of goes into this, this dark uh, place where he knows he's not he's because of that faith in other people he's not trusted by the brotherhood anymore he's he's kind of out mm-hmm. on his own and and um that's that was one of my favorite parts of Simeon to write you know when he's stalking the streets of Paris and just not himself anymore and he's lost himself because of that um so uh yeah so I hope I hope he's not annoyingly uh gullible <laughs> no I definitely no he I definitely don't think he ever came across that you came across mm-hmm. as that he he's trying to do the right thing yeah. And we're human, we make mistakes. But yeah, that, that section when he's sort of cast out, mm-hmm. but also kept around almost like an errand boy, mm-hmm. you think, you know, poor guy. Yeah. He's a break. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he hope. does. He does. Yeah. So, so yeah, we will, justice for Simeon is a, <laughs> is a good hashtag. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we had sort of one final point, and I think we've already... Mm-hmm covered it but I'll, I'll just ask it just to for completeness so um do you think constance's love for simeon was real i think it was mm-hmm. although as you say she ultimately yeah. chose her own power her own path but i think it was real is that how you, you yeah. wrote it as as a real thing or as a, as a trick yeah i did i did i had in mind that that it was real as real as it could be for her, you know, and I think she, um, and maybe she surprised herself a little bit that, um, it got too close and, you know, maybe that's why she makes the decision that she makes, but, um, that, you know, whatever her motives were, I think there's something real there. And, uh, you know, and, and I don't, I don't think it would have been convincing for Simeon for the, those years if, if it hadn't been, uh, real on some level. Um, you know, I mean, she would have had to be a wonderful actor, I think, to, to pull that off otherwise. So, um, so I do think there was something real there, but, um, you know, whether it was, uh, deep enough or true enough, um, you know, or whether it was just completely overpowered by, uh, by her ambition, um, I don't know, but I think that's, that's one of the sort of interesting questions, uh, for me about her character. Um, and she's, she's always going to be a little bit of a, a woman of mystery in that way, I think. An enigma. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, I was going to say, I think it's strange that, I know I may have interpreted the book completely wrong with Simeon and Constance, but I always felt that her kind of like her twist was partly on Simeon, that maybe he didn't open up his mind enough to the Templar order, that, Mm -hmm. you know, she was willing to listen, to be educated, and was sometimes where when you look at how he's fixated on the creed and how he's philosophical and how he learns, that he didn't come across that he would be willing to sit down and be open about the Templar order and mm-hmm. take everything in that they believe and their history. And I think when she like 
got to the point she did. I think, in my opinion, it felt like that she was giving it all to Simeon. She was loving him. She had everything. Mm-hmm. But he maybe wasn't just recipient, recipient in that he didn't want to learn about the Templars because they're the bad guys. I'm not mm-hmm. learning them. You can learn about my assassins, but I'm not learning about yours. So... Mm-hmm. I think I may have interpreted it wrong at that point, but no, I think that's that's a fantastic point, and I think you know I think there's room for all of these things to be true in some degree, and I think uh, definitely, definitely I felt for her in that period too because if there was some sincerity in her desire to become an assassin, then yeah, they're not they're treating her with a lot of mistrust as well, and saying okay, well you can be one of us, but you've got to do what we say. We're gonna we're gonna have babysitters with you all the time, you know. Like we don't like your ideas. No, we're not gonna do your your evil plan, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I think that that definitely makes sense to me. Is that she also felt frustrated and like she could never be herself completely if she was in this situation. Um, so I definitely felt a little bit of sympathy for her um, in a sort of twisted way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a theme throughout this whole universe that Mm -hmm. many on both sides have pretty miserable either youths or upbringings or or lives. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a it's not a life one would choose lightly. Um, No, exactly. Yeah, and that that paradox uh, of trust, of putting trust in someone, is that you've got to trust someone to do this kind of work um, beside them. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. um, you can't. You know, you can't. you know, you, you can't say, okay, well, I'm going to trust this person completely because you have colleagues that you've got to think about as well. So, um, yeah. yeah, there's a tension there for sure. Mm. All right. I look forward to uh, the future. That's all we can mm-hmm. say about that. But uh, yeah, that. yeah, we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see what comes down the road. But uh, yeah, I've enjoyed <laughs> I've enjoyed these two books uh, immensely. And uh, yeah, hope to hope to be around. Uh, I'll certainly be around on forums and Twitter talking about them if nothing else. So. <laughs> I have. I just thought of one little fluff question, which I don't think will break any rules. Um, how many different uh, interviews and podcasts and written interviews and so on have you done for these two books across uh, all, all of our different community teams and and uh, creators? A lot, especially with the first one. The first one, um, Akonite really uh, and Ubisoft both, you know, really. Um, you know, try to find a lot of opportunities for me to, to talk about it. And, and of course people came to us as well. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any numbers in my mind, but I've had quite a few. Uh, it was a really interesting spread with the first book because uh, there were quite a few like this, where there were people who, you know, know Assassin's Creed really well and, and were coming from that perspective and, you know, which is lots of fun. But then I also had some interviews that were, uh, you know, people who don't know anything about it at all. I had some like drive time radio interviews and that kind of thing. And uh, which was fun in a different way, because then you get to introduce people who are not familiar with the universe um, at all. Um, And that's been really, you know, I talked in the beginning, uh, you know, had the sort of cheesy moment about uh, appreciating the fans of the franchise who welcomed the book. But that's another thing that was really great is that I have also heard from people who had no experience with Assassin's Creed whatsoever and picked up the Mega Conspiracy for some reason, either they liked my other writing or just happened to see it and liked the beautiful cover. Uh, and and now are fans of the franchise. So I think that's really neat. Too, I would to love to hear from people who've got no prior knowledge and just yeah. sit down and read and go, that was great. And then yeah, 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 you've opened really their mind cool. to this huge sort of story, you know, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's really neat to be someone's someone's gateway into the universe. Mm, absolutely. 
absolutely all right um we are kind of at the end of our um questions that we were going to ask and talking points to have with kate but before we close the show um we did ask kate if she wouldn't mind reading a little excerpt uh from the book and then we'll uh, we'll end the recording so um declan do we have any final points before we hand over to kate um no no final points yet all right. all right. So just the usual like, subscribe, hit the bell, all that rubbish that YouTubers say. I don't know. We're not very professional here. So <laughs> hey, over to you. Let's let's hear a little bit of uh, resurrection plot. Great. Yes. Thank you. This is great. I mean, uh, I know we've, we've got to put tons of spoiler warnings on this one, but it was it was really nice to be able to talk about some of the points in the book, too, and go into some depth about yes. it. So, uh, yeah. So I think there's a, um, a benefit to doing that once in a while. Mm. Um, all right. So I'm just going to read... Uh, just the first two or three pages here, and um, not not to keep people too long. Just from chapter one of the resurrection plot. Pierrette Arnaud sat on the edge of a four-story roof and pulled her cloak tightly around her so the blue ball gown beneath wouldn't draw attention. Beside her, Sophia Elnadi was dressed in her usual dark shawl that fell in a peak over the forehead, a thin gold cylinder between her eyes, holding the black crocheted veil that hid at her waist much less conspicuous, at least in this part of Cairo. The women were two small additions to a skyscape of square roofs and twisting domes, lattice windows and fluted columns, stonework and plaster. Their feet dangled from the roof of a gable, a good vantage point. Sophia had kept company with Pierrette on the walk from the house they shared near one of the old city gates. From the beginning, Pierrette felt they were being followed. She trusted her instincts, but if there was someone following, she couldn't see them. Perhaps she had reached the moment in her life as an assassin, when ghosts would dog her steps. It would only be fair. She had created enough of them. Nonetheless, she had signaled to Sophia to change course. So they'd come to the street where Sophia's husband, Gamal Sabri, was selling books today. It was a street they knew well, and they'd both climbed lightly up onto the roofs in a narrow alley. In the coffee shop opposite their rooftop, a half-dozen men smoked long pipes under an awning and chatted with Gamal, who had spread the books from his cart onto a carpeted table. Gamal liked to say that bookselling was merely an excellent way for an assassin to monitor the streets of Cairo, but he couldn't hide his passion for the job. Gamal caught the women's eyes, his turban tilting slightly as he looked up. The street was busy, with water carriers and vendors calling out and women passing through on donkeys, servants at their side. Gamal took an English copy of Darwin's On the Origin of Species off his table to show it to a customer. Pierrette recognized it from the golden triangles on the green spine. She'd perused the books on Gamal's cart many times. I see no followers, Sophia said. The shadows were long. The sun was beginning to set. She had to be at the opera house soon. Still, something kept her where she was. Do you want to go over the plan again? Sophia asked patiently. You seem nervous. Pierrette was 37 years old, a skilled assassin and a veteran circus performer. She did not think of herself as a person who got nervous. The reason she'd come to Egypt in the first place was that she'd been frustrated by the unwillingness of the British assassins to take risks. She was here to fight. She was grateful to have a task she believed in. That seems like a good place to stop. Bravo. Thank you so much. That was lovely. Love that. Uh, the full of visual imagery right from the start you said you don't you imagine your characters in a white room but that was full of visual imagery and that was great mm -hmm. lovely thank you so much kate 
Thank you. Thank you both. And with that, we'll end the episode. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks.